Well, good morning. Peace be with you. This upcoming Tuesday, Halloween, it actually marks the 500th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther, a guilt-ridden Catholic monk, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And in doing so, Martin Luther started a movement that changed not just the course of his life, but the course of the history of the church and really the course of the world. This, this event is widely recognized as the start of the movement known as the Protestant Reformation. And so in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we're spending the next five weeks looking at five theological principles that emerged out of the Reformation and that sum up its teaching and its essence. These five principles are known as the five solas. Sola is the Latin word for alone. And the five principles are grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, and the glory of God alone. And as we look at these things, it's important to recognize that the reformers, men like Luther and Calvin and others, these guys weren't innovators as much as they were excavators. They didn't discover something new and creative. Rather, they, they discovered something that, had, that was old and forgotten and neglected. Truths that were in God's word, but for, for hundreds and hundreds of years had been overlooked, discarded, and contradicted. And so we're going to kick off the series this morning by looking at this idea of grace alone and what that means, what it means for the church and what it means for our lives. And to understand this, we have to do a little bit of history. We got to understand a little bit of the history of the medieval church, and we got to understand a little bit of the background and the context into which all of this happened. And I know for some of you thinking, gosh, this is, sounds interesting. We're going to talk about theology debates from 500 years ago and look at church history. That sounds really intriguing. Trust me, it is. It is fascinating because the, the heart of the Reformation, the big question of the Reformation is the big question of life. It's the question, how can we be made right with God? How can we be saved? How can we who are sinful and estranged from God come into a relationship and know God, be reconnected to our Savior? More particularly, the question is, what does God bring to the table of our salvation? And what do we bring? And it's important to understand that all sides, this might be surprising for you, all sides agreed in the medieval church that God's grace was necessary for our salvation. Everyone would say you cannot be saved apart from God's grace. The debate was not over the existence of God's grace, but rather the extent of it. The common belief in the medieval church, and this, this is pretty much a verbatim quote, was that God will not deny his grace to those who do their best. God will not deny his grace to those who do their best. This, this belief, it's not much different than the motto of our day that says, God helps those who help themselves. That if you try your hardest and you do your best, when judgment comes, God will show you grace and let you into heaven. Now, on the surface, just like in our world, on the surface, people think that sounds pretty good and encourages people to good people to be good. And, and it also encourages this idea of God who will be kind as long as we're really, really good. On the surface, that, this might sound harmless, but the implications of this teaching, the implications of this understanding of grace 
wreaked havoc on the church and really gutted the church of its life and its power. Because if you took your faith seriously and you were taught God will not deny his grace to those who do their best, well, you had a question that was constantly hanging over your head like a dark cloud. How do I know if I've done my best? How do I know if I've tried my hardest? To help people answer that question, in 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council, the church issued a mandate requiring all Christians over the age of seven to regularly confess their sins to a priest. And the goal of this, at least on the surface and initially, was this will help people as they're trying to do their best. And so you would go regularly, you would confess your sins to a priest, and then the priest, in turn, he would respond by asking you questions of examination with the intent, with these questions, to expose sins that maybe you didn't know existed in your life. Some of the questions, there was an official list, here are a few of them. Number one, have you dressed proudly, danced lustily, committed adultery, girl-watched, exchanged adulterous smiles? Number two, have you questioned God's power or goodness when you lost a game? We'd have to adapt that when someone else lost a game that you were watching. Have you muttered against God because of bad weather, illness, poverty, the death of a child, or a friend? So there were dozens of these questions that would be asked, and the result was not that people would leave confession feeling invigorated to live a holy life. Instead, people would leave confession terrified of the damnation they felt they surely deserved. Now, as a consolation, the Catholic Church held out this promise uh, of purgatory, that yes, you might not be good enough when you die to merit God's salvation, but don't give up hope. You can go, after you die, to purgatory, where your sins will be slowly purged from your body over many, many years. And depending on your sinfulness, you could spend 100 years, you could spend 1,000 years, you could spend maybe even a million years, depending how bad you are, getting your sins slowly purged from your body and the fires of purgatory. Now, <laughs> not surprisingly, some people began to ask, hey, is there anything we can do to fast track this purgatory process? I know it's supposed to be a comfort, but that doesn't sound very fun. And the church responded, in essence, yes, we've got good news. You're in luck. You see, there were some people who were so good not only did they bypass purgatory altogether and go straight to heaven, they actually had a surplus of goodness. And the surplus is kept, you know, conveniently enough, in the church's treasury, and the Pope has the keys to this treasury. And the Pope, what he can do is he can issue a gift of merit, which was called an indulgence, to anyone that he deems worthy. And this gift of merit, this indulgence, if he gave it to you, it could shorten your time in purgatory. If it was a big enough gift that he gave you, you could bypass it altogether and go straight to heaven when you die. Initially, these gifts of merit, these indulgences were given as a reward for participating in the first crusade. But soon enough, the church, they were in financial trouble. They had to pay Michelangelo for all the work he was doing in the midst of other things. And they said, you know what, we can just start selling these indulgences. And so there are some very, very famous preachers who would travel. They're like modern-day televangelists. They would go around, and they would preach these sermons all about buying indulgences. A quote from one of the sermons was, 
Can you hear your dead relatives screaming out in pain and purgatory while you fiddle away your money? And so, <laughs> yeah. And they would say, if you give, you know that the famous motto, you probably learned this in history class, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Put your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open and in strolls mom. That was another one. Um, and, and it's glorious that we can laugh right now. But in that day, you have to remember, these people didn't have access to a Bible. The overwhelming majority of the people had never read the Bible. Furthermore, they would go to church, and church wasn't held in language that people could understand. It was held in Latin. And so at the high point of Mass, when the, the priest would take the bread and lift it and say, this is the body of Christ. In Latin, that was hocus est corpus meum. The people heard it as hocus pocus. And for them, their religion was very mysterious. But one thing was clear. God is someone to be terrified of. Someone to be afraid of. They saw God as all judge and no love. They saw Jesus as the doomsday judge all terrifying in his holiness. And because of this, they felt there was no way they could ever dare approach him in prayer. There's no way he would listen to us sinners. And so instead of going to Jesus in prayer, people started going to his mother in prayer instead. He might not listen to us, but he'll listen to her. Now over time, People began to, to revere Mary so much, they felt like, we, she's the mother of God. We can't talk to her. And so they started praying to Mary's mom to intercede with Mary, to intercede with Jesus on their behalf. Mary's mom was named Anne. Saint Anne, there was kind of a whole following uh, of Saint Anne. It attracted the, the devotion of many, including one obscure, relatively obscure family, named the Luthers, and it was into this family that Martin, their second son, was born. It was into this world that Martin came to first understand God, and his first understanding of God, uh, he, he says, he writes later in life, he said, from childhood on, I knew I had to turn pale and be terror-stricken when I heard the name of Christ. For I was taught only to see him as a strict and wrathful judge. And Luther, he lived in this constant state of guilt and fear. He was terrified of God. He was terrified of disappointing his dad. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer. And so he was going to university, studying to be a lawyer, went home. And then on, on the way back to the university one day, he got caught in a thunderstorm. And he was nearly struck by a bolt of lightning. And he was sure that that was God's judgment in his life. And so there, in that moment, he prayed to St. Anne, to Mary's mom. And he said, if you spare me, I'll become a monk. Well, he was spared. He became a monk. And in becoming a monk, Luther's, uh, the guilt in his heart, the fear, the terror he had of God, it, it wasn't alleviated. It only increased. He was tormented by his own sin, and he was terrified of God's unbending justice. He would fast as many as three days a week. He would sleep without a blanket in the dead of winter, all to put off, you know, the desires of the flesh. 
and he wrestled and he wrestled. And he, he writes later that this understanding of God, that, that he used to fear God, but over time he began to hate God. And the question that dominated Martin's life was, how do I find a gracious God? Where do I find a gracious God? He would confess so many sins all the time to his father and his confessor that eventually uh, his father, his, the priest who was over him said, hey, will you stop it? Like, you're confessing so much. Go do something really, really bad. Like, go commit adultery or kill one of your parents or something. Then can come confess. What you're confessing isn't that big of a deal. But Luther, man, he took his sin seriously. And so he was sent to go study the Bible. And that's when everything began to change for him. As Luther opened God's word and began to wrestle with what it said, over time, and through a lot of struggle, he encountered a God who was exceedingly more gracious and kind than he could have ever imagined. Because he opened the word. And because he quit taking other people's opinions and thoughts, he opened the word and he dove in. And what I want to do with the rest of our time together this morning is look at two of the truths that Luther discovered in God's word that transformed his life. And really, these two truths, they lit the match of the Reformation, which changed the world. And I'd submit to you that these two truths, when you understand them, they will change your life. And when God's people get a renewed vision of these truths, they start to become a, a force of renewal in the world. And the two truths are this, very simply, the magnitude of our sin and the magnificence of God's grace. The magnitude of our sin and the magnificence of God's grace. And I recognize sin is not a word. When we talk about the magnitude of sin, it's not a word people like to use in our day. I mean, we kind of hate it as a culture. We've tried to re remove it from our vocabulary and replace it with words like weakness or failure or imperfection. And some of you are sitting here saying, you want to teach me about the graciousness of God by talking to me about sin? And the answer, of course, is yes. And this is where Christianity is counterintuitive. You see, for the reformers, more importantly for Paul, we can't understand grace, really what that is, without a proper understanding of sin. You get sin wrong, you're going to get grace wrong. So what Paul says here in Ephesians 2, he's writing to the Ephesians, but he's really kind of holding forth for all of us the state we are in because of our sin apart from the grace of God. And what Paul says is, as for you, verse 1 and 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, the language Paul uses here to describe sin is exceedingly important. Luther, or sorry, Paul does not say that you were sick in your sin. Paul says that you were dead in your sin. You see, if you're sick, well, there are degrees of sickness. You can have the common cold. You can have cancer. It's very, very different degrees, but if you're sick, there are degrees. You can be better, you can be worse. Furthermore, if you're sick, there are things that you can do to contribute to bringing yourself back to health. You can call a doctor, 
You can take some medicine. You can change your diet. You can exercise. There are different things you can do to get better. Now, most people, especially in America, especially in American churches even, the way they talk about sin is they talk about it as a sickness. They talk about it in degrees. We see this in the self-righteousness of so many who claim the name of Christ. Sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most. That's just another way of saying, I don't have cancer, I just have a cold. I'm not as bad as other people. We see this in the way people talk and Christians talk about being good. Like, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm doing my best and I'm giving it my all. I'm trying to do things to make myself less sinful. Now, what Paul says is we're not spiritually sick, we're spiritually dead. And you know what? There are no degrees in death. Death's kind of funny like that, right? You can't be kind of dead. If you're dead, you're dead. No degrees. Furthermore, if you're dead, there's nothing you can do to bring yourself back to life. Like you can't contribute. You can't try really hard because, of course, you're dead. And the only way a dead person ever comes back to life is through a miraculous resurrection that comes from the hand of God. Now, a clarification is necessary here because some people, they take these truths and they beat people up with them. I want to say a couple of things. Number one, when Paul says that we are spiritually dead because of our sin, he's not saying that every human being is as bad as they could possibly be. It's just simply not true. The Bible indicates that God gives all sorts of people, regardless of what they believe about him, gifts of wisdom, the ability to do helpful things in order to make this world a more livable place. And so when Paul says we're all dead in our sin, he isn't saying everyone's as rotten as they could possibly be. What he's saying is that all of us have turned to God and we are dead to God and on our own we will never look to God. We'll never seek him as Paul says in Romans 3 again and again. No one seeks for God. No one looks to God. No one turns to God. And the reason we don't look to God is because we look to ourselves. Is because we're obsessed with ourselves. It's one of the side effects of sin. We focus just on ourselves. Martin Luther actually de defines sin as humanity curved inward, focused on itself. Because we're focused there, we can't put God there because we put ourselves there. And this is exactly what Paul's getting at in verse 3 when Paul says, all of us also lived among them. He's talking about people here who are still dead in their transgressions. He's talking to the saints, though. He said, we used to live in them, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following, and that word following is really important, following its desires and thoughts. Following is the language of obedience. It's the language of slavery. And what Paul's saying is, we, we follow, we're enslaved to our sinful thoughts our desires, and our cravings. We can't, we can't give our lives to God because we're enslaved to, to being obsessed with ourselves and living for ourselves. Even the good things that we do, there's something in it for us. And really, this is one of the ways you can understand the magnitude of sin. Sin puts a filter over our minds and our eyes and our lives so that we look at everything and everyone in every situation, and there's this question that's always being asked from the sinful heart, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? 
Why should I do that? What will I get out of it? How's it going to benefit my reputation, my happiness, my comfort, my glory, my control over things? When we do really, really religious things in our sin, on the surface, they might look really, really good. But even that, it's self-centered because it's just trying to get, get some insurance from hell. It's just trying to earn God's love because you don't want to suffer pain. It's not a heart that longs for God and longs to worship God. Sin, if anything, the church hasn't made a big enough deal about sin. And when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church, he wasn't arguing, hey, you guys are being too hard on people. You're taking too, sin too serious. He was saying, y'all aren't taking sin seriously enough. <laughs> the notion that God will not deny his grace to those who do their best suggests that our best efforts will be acceptable to God. And Luther saw that our best efforts, they're still stained by sin and tainted by sin. I mean, we're fueled by, by mixed motives and selfish ambition. And to think that one could buy their way out of judgment or purgatory out of God's holy standards by doing a few good things or giving some money to the church, that's absurd. We're dead. We're slaves. We will never turn to God on our own. Sin curves us in on ourselves. Now, what I mean when I say is we don't put enough emphasis on sin, I don't think we put a big enough emphasis on the magnitude of sin. See, the reason Luther, the reason Paul, the reason they talk about sin so much, because you read the Bible, they talk about sin a lot. And in our day, we think that's just really, really negative. But the reason, reason Paul talks about sin so much, one, you notice he never just rubs our nose in our sin and how awful we are just for the fun of it. He never just says, you're a miserable little wretch and you have been your entire life. Grace and peace, like ends the letter. <laughs> Some preachers do that. Sometimes the church does that. And they do it because you can control people. It's a means of having power, which we saw in the medieval church, Right? You're miserable. If you want to feel less miserable, here are some things you can do. Paul, he just says, no, you're dead. Like, don't you understand? And really, even the way Paul talks about sin, it's a grace to us. Because what he's trying to say is, stop thinking that somehow you're going to get your life together well enough that God's going to start loving you. Stop thinking that if you're just more moral and more devoted and more dedicated and you do more and more good things and you serve the church more and you give more money, stop thinking that that's going to somehow put you right with God. It can't. You are dead. You're a slave. You are an object of God's wrath. But, Paul says, but, Paul never stops there, but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. This is Christianity in two verses. It tells us not just what God has done, it tells us why he's done it. What has God done? Even when we were dead, 
in our sin, God made us alive in Christ. Why has he done it? Because of his great love for us. Because he is rich in mercy. God saves us not because of anything we do or have done, but because of his great love for us. And then Paul, he wants to emphasize it. He says, it's by grace you have been saved. Now, the medieval church, they viewed grace as a substance, a thing or a force God gives us to help us be better people. So God's going to pour a little bit of grace. He's going to give you a shot of grace. You know, one author described it as grace as like a, a can of spiritual Red Bull that God gives us to help kickstart you and get you going so that you can be a little better person. What the reformers uncovered, and they, it was an old truth, it's right here, we just read it, is that God's grace, it's not a substance, it's God's countenance. It's his posture towards us. Paul says in Ephesians 2 is that God's posture towards us is one of love. It's great love. I want to encourage you, close your eyes for a second, and I mean it. Close your eyes, and imagine you are standing before the almighty, holy God. What is his posture towards you? What's on his face? Is he angry? Is he disappointed? Is he annoyed? Or is he delighted? The gospel says that if you are in Christ, he's delighted. That he takes joy. That he celebrates calling you his daughter or his son. You can open your eyes. I know some of you are thinking, well, how can that be? How can God delight in me? Do you know what I did this past week? Do you know what I did last night? You don't get it. It's not about you. It was never about you. That's still your sin. Sin says it's all about me. Well, look at all the stuff that I've done. There's no way God could love me. It ain't about you. So Paul just said here, like when you were dead, God made you alive. Not because you were in your deadness were saying, please make me alive, or in your deadness somehow like you didn't smell so bad. Like you were dead. You're like Lazarus in the tomb. Three days. You know, King James, Mary says to Jesus, by this time he stinketh. That's where we were, like dead in the tomb. And God made us alive, not because of righteous things we have done. And Paul says it here. And then at the very end, he's, just in case we don't get it, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Not by works. It's a gift of God. What Paul's trying to say here is it's grace, 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 grace. He's saying you bring nothing to the table of your salvation other than your sin. And Jesus takes your sin on the cross and he gives you his righteousness. And you say, why? I don't really know, like to be blunt with you, other than because of his great love for us. 
Why does he love us? I don't know, because that's who he is, I guess. Like we know God is loving, but if we're looking for it, why does he do it? Because of his great love for us. And you might say, but why does he love us? What have we, that's just who he is. You're thinking, if that's true, it's kind of too good to be true. It doesn't matter? No, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what I've done? No, it doesn't matter what I'm doing? Not really. You're saved by grace and grace alone. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. This was the real controversy of the Reformation. It wasn't the word grace, it was the word alone, because alone changes everything. Alone says our salvation isn't dependent upon how good we are. Alone says our security isn't dependent upon how faithful we remain. Alone says it's all a gift that God gives us because of his great love for us, period. And sometimes in the church, we put such an emphasis on sin, but we, we don't go deep enough, right? We use sin to convict. You're miserable here, the things that you've done wrong. No, the, the point the Bible's making when it talks so much about our slavery to sin and our death of sin is to say, you were dead. You were long gone. And God made you alive because of his great love, because that's the kind of God he is. Let me tell you, when you understand that you're saved by grace and grace alone, it changes everything. It changes everything. This was the truth that exploded in the early church and that caused this, remember this, we looked at this in Acts, this ragtag band of followers of Jesus, like 120 of them, they're broke, they don't have two nickels to rub together, they're uneducated, they have no influence, but they understood this and they changed the world and they turned Rome on its head. This is the truth that Luther uncovered and the reformers uncovered and it turned the church on its head. And I'll tell you, if you understand these truths, it will turn your life upside down. It'll transform you. It'll infuse you with a joy like you've never experienced. One of my favorite quotes about the Reformation is from a a pastor named Robert Capon, and he said this. He said, the Reformation was a time when people went Blind, staggering, drunk, because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, of bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handed. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of believers trying to lift themselves into heaven by worrying about the perfection of their own bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home, they were home free even before they started. For the reformers, grace was to be drunk neat, no water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale, neither goodness nor badness, nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter that case because it's grace and it's grace alone. Now, when the church loses its grasp on this, and this is why I wanted to share so much of the history, you see what happens. When we lose our grip on this, what happens? Well, we start to drift, and our faith becomes more about what we do for God than about what he's done for us. Instead of being filled with joy and hope, we're filled with guilt and fear. 
Instead of the church being a blessing to the world, in many ways it becomes a blight on the world. But when you get this, it changes everything. Your, your anxiety, your spiritual anxiety gives way to assurance. You know you're safe. Furthermore, this idea of Christianity being a performance for God turns into Christianity being participating in life with God. Where it's not about, I have to get it right all the time, or else God will damn me. Instead, it's, I can, I can go to him, and I can rest in him. And this is the truth. We must never move beyond. This is something that needs to be constantly renewed in our hearts. Some of you are saying, well, I believe this, I believe this. Let me ask you some questions. When you, when you sin, are you eager to pray right afterwards? Because I'll just say I know someone. I won't say anyone in particular. Uh, that's just me. This is what I feel. Uh, when I sin, I feel like I need to get some good works in the bank before I go pray. Anyone else feel like that? Like, I don't think I want to pray at this moment. I better, like, you know, I'll go do the dishes and, like, whatever. Then I can go to God. Like, what is that? It's a failure to understand that we're saved by grace and grace alone. When we go to God in prayer, can we be honest? Are your prayers honest? That's a great sign. If your prayers aren't honest, if they're filled with language you would never use elsewhere, maybe that's a sign you've lost your grip on the fact that we're saved by grace and grace alone. If you, if you wrestle constantly wondering, does God really love me? That means you failed to comprehend that he saves you by grace and grace alone. This isn't something, it's not just like once we understand this, we're home free. Luther actually, late in his life, he talked about this error we have of thinking that our good works, you know, enable us to stand before God. And he was talking, this is decades after his conversion, I mean, his real conversion. And he said, I'm still fighting against this error without having conquered it as yet. That one of the effects of remaining sin in our life is for the rest of our lives, we have to continually fight against this belief that we're saved by what we do. And so to that end, I want to encourage you in two things. Number one, I want to encourage you. You can read the first nine, ten verses of Ephesians in a minute. And I want to challenge you. Read it three times a day for the next week. And just sit in it. Like, there are no better words in my book that have ever been written than what Paul writes here. Number two, as we come to the table, I want you to come with joy. Because when we were helpless, when we were stuck in our sin, while we were still sinners, as Paul says, Christ died for us. And his body was broken for us. And his blood was poured out for us. And so this, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the cup of the new covenant that's poured out for you. A covenant's a promise that God makes. And the promise is, I've saved you and I'm gonna bring you home. And so when we come to the table, Jesus gave us this to remind us of his love for us because our weeks are so hard, our weeks can be so rough because sin pops its head up. And when sin pops its head up, we're discouraged. And we think, gosh, I, I've blown it again. God's going to lose his patience. And God puts the table on our life and says, no, he's not. No, I'm not. 
And so if you're in Christ, we encourage you to come and to, to take part. If you're here and you're not a Christian, but this is appealing to you, that's a sign that God's spirit is at work in your life. And what I want to challenge you is don't quench the spirit and don't resist the spirit. Because you're going to leave here and the world's going to tell you all these lies that your life is all about what you do, what you buy, how good you are. This is the truth, the eternal truth. Don't resist it. Instead, receive the work he's doing in your life. Let me pray.